Shortly after our family moved to Indianapolis, I received a panicked phone call from my wife. And I trust that you, like me, can tell very quickly how my wife is doing by merely the greeting on the phone call or the first words that she says. The tone of her greeting told me that she'd been crying. She said, Mark, I'm downtown and I can't figure out how to get home. I'm lost. Now you need to know this was before she had an iPhone, before she owned a navigation app. That would soon change. Frankly, we lived in, when we lived in Michigan, there was no need for such devices. In fact, some of them hadn't been invented. Our, our previous hometown had a few roads, a few main roads. The routes to and from our home and everywhere else weren't that complicated, but moving to a new metropolitan area created a major new challenge. So there she is, downtown Indianapolis, without a GPS, without an iPhone. How do you think I got my wife home? I asked her a series of questions. Honey, are you on the highway or not? No. (laughs) What buildings do you see? I see big ones. (laughs) What are the names on the building? One America, okay. Is that building on your left or the right? My left. Is the sun behind you or in front of you? Eventually, I got her on 465. As I recall the story, though, I actually told her to go the wrong way. (laughs) And my directional ability lives in infamy because I think she went all the way around 465. (laughs) She took the long way home, but she got there. And then we bought her an iPhone. (laughs) So... When you don't know where you are, how do you get home? Or how do you know what the reference point is in order to get you from point A to point B? You look for some major landmarks. That's what I was doing with my questions. I'm using the sun. I'm using buildings. I'm using um, her left or right. I'm using different landmarks in order to understand where she is, and how to chart a course. Today in the book of Isaiah, what I want to do is to give you some landmarks like that. Our aim today is to cover 66 chapters in 24 minutes and two seconds. (laughs) We won't be able to cover all of the chapters, obviously, and today begins a year-long study in this glorious book, And I want to give you just a high-level overview. We're going to look at a lot of texts to give you a big-picture sense of what is this book about. And you need to know what Isaiah is about because this prophetic book is historic, it's important, it's complicated, and it's timely. Isaiah records God's message to his people in the 8th century, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. If you want to know what's going on in the middle of this book or in the middle of this season when this book is written, I would point you to Nate Irwin's summary at our worship-based prayer night. In like 11 minutes, he summarized the entire book of Isaiah incredibly well. He said that 
The book of Isaiah is written during a time of material prosperity and spiritual indifference. A time of social inequity and injustice. A time when wealthy people were getting wealthier and poor people were getting poorer. A time of political divisions and moral weakness. A time of pride in leaders and culture and a time where religion had a thin veneer. Isaiah writes to a group of people who know better. They should know what God is like. They should trust him. But the dynamics in their life, in their culture, and in their world, like in every history known to mankind, the people were wrestling, the people of God were wrestling, do we trust God or not? Or what exactly does that look like? The book of Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Isaiah records some of the most familiar prophecies about the Messiah, and it also issues some of the strongest calls to repentance. The 66 books of Isaiah address an immediate crisis. The crisis is one of trust. With looming external political threats, Isaiah gives prophecies about the future and immediate calls to repentance. Isaiah speaks into the spiritual issues connected to what God's people are actually placing their hopes in. He issues strong warnings about their failure to really love one another and then points them as a reminder as to where their true deliverance will come from. Our sermon series is called Our God Saves. The title comes right from the name of Isaiah, which means Yahweh is salvation. And this theme, Our God Saves, will guide us all the way through the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, essentially identifying this key dynamic. Listen carefully. Big problems require a big God. You come to church today with big problems? The world has big problems? Isaiah speaks into that and says, those problems are real, but God is bigger. Isaiah is a masterpiece of prophetic literature. It, 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 it takes you to theological summits in order to gain perspective. It helps us to be spiritually refreshed. Some of you over the next couple of weeks, no doubt, will take some sort of vacation. I find it true in life that there are generally two kinds of people who travel and take vacations. There are mountain people and there are beach people. Mountain people, let me see your hands. All right, very good. As it relates to the book of Isaiah, you know what it's like. You go up to the mountains, your phone doesn't work, you're seeing beautiful vistas, the bigness and the majesty of, of, of just fields of trees. Isaiah is a book that takes you to 14,000 feet and shows you incredible beauty and reminds you there's a bigger thing going on than my little problems. All right, beach people, who are you? Excellent, you're a little tan already. <laughs> a beach is a place as you look over a vast expanse of water, as you hear the crash of the waves, all of the problems at work, the conflicts at home, they just 
tend to downshift, don't they? Isaiah is a book that spreads out a blanket and as you watch a sunset, you marvel at the orange and red hues and you're stunned with the beauty of the majesty of what is in front of you. Church, Isaiah is going to help you to be reminded who is really in control. Isaiah is going to help you to be reminded where your hope really lies. Along with the title, Our God Saves, there's three key words in that title that are gonna stay with us over the next year. Those words are turn, believe, and live. Those will be consistent throughout our series because they will serve as a regular landmark to remind you when we're in the weeds, where am I in the book of Isaiah? They serve as the threefold outline of this book. In chapters 1 through 39, the first section, Isaiah calls on God's people to turn from their trusting in idols, to turn from their fears, to turn from looking to political solutions for their problems, to turn from trusting in everything but God himself, to turn from their religious hypocrisy, to turn from their disobedience. In chapters 40 through 55, God promises particular things and we're invited to believe him, believe that he is faithful, believe that his promises do indeed work. And then in chapters 55 through 66, we're called to live with the hope of God's future deliverance as we obey him now in light of what he promises about our eternal lives in the future. So keep these three words in mind, turn, believe, and live, because they'll serve as the landmarks, if you will, as we make our way through this glorious book. Every book of the Bible has a setting and an author. The Holy Spirit inspires individuals to write books, and along with their writing is their own unique personality, style, and circumstances. And in a couple weeks, we'll talk a little bit more about who wrote Isaiah, beyond just Isaiah himself, because of some of the dynamics in the book. We'll cover that in a little bit. If you look in chapter one and verse one, we we see the beginning of the book, the the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So from the very beginning, Isaiah identifies that he's the author. He's identified as the son of Amos, and Jewish tradition suggests that Isaiah's father was the brother of King Amaziah, a king who didn't listen. So it's likely that Isaiah was an extended member of the royal family. Other indications are that he was a scribe, perhaps a royal scribe. So Isaiah writes not as an outsider prophet, like Amos and others, Isaiah writes as an insider prophet, somebody who understood the machinations of power, somebody who had a front row seat to the inner workings of the nation. And Isaiah is deeply concerned about the spiritual trajectory of his country. 
At the time of Isaiah's writing, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Isaiah's main focus is on this southern kingdom, but he also addresses the northern kingdom as well prior to the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC. So chapters 1 to 39 happen in the 8th century prior to that invasion. The second section happens during, or rather after, the exile when Babylon conquered Judah in 586. Isaiah 1.1 dates the writing with the, a list of kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, I would suspect that for many of us, those names of kings are just names. But you need to know that what Isaiah is doing is he's, he's, he's sort of laying down a marker in light of the reigns of these particular kings. And there's context to those names. In the same way, if I were to say, this is the history of College Park Church during the days of Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. Each of those names would have things connected to it, some good, some bad. The reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah encompass a hundred years. This is the setting for the first 39 books of this book, And it's an era of history where there were more good kings than bad, although they weren't perfect. Kings that generally did things that were right in the sight of the Lord. Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah in particular. Ahaz was not a good king. And the nation during this season experienced blessings in terms of land. Militarily, they were strong. Lots of victories. There were economic and financial securities and prosperity that was happening. But the problem was, while all of that was happening, the people allowed their prosperity to dull their relationship with God. Their worship, quite frankly, was fake. They failed to love one another. Idolatry and injustice were rampant in their culture. When we come to Isaiah chapter 6, we hear Isaiah's call to ministry. Famously, Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah sees God in light of who he is, and Isaiah's response is, Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's Isaiah. I have seen the Lord. I am not holy, and my people aren't holy. And then God sends Isaiah on a mission, and his mission is this. Go, say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How's that for a call to ministry? Isaiah sees God, and then he sends Isaiah to declare a message that will be categorically rejected. Here is a prophet who will issue warnings, but his words will be resisted And the people will constantly face fearful circumstances because God has one aim. It is to get their attention. 
So Isaiah is a book of judgment and hope. And different chapters tip different directions. The point of Isaiah is that God loves his people enough that he aims to win them back. And he wins them back through divine discipline, and that discipline comes through prophetic words and fearful circumstances. The issue continually that God's people have to wrestle with is, are they going to listen, and are they going to trust? Isaiah is all about those two realities. The setting for the little nation of Israel was that there was this massive superpower called Assyria, and Assyria was taking over the world. Nobody was stronger. Nobody was more cruel. And Assyria was threatening the northern area of Syria and eventually would conquer Israel. And then Assyria is sacked by Babylon, and then Babylon is sacked by Persia. And the whole point of the book of Isaiah is this. You think Assyria is strong? (laughs) You think Babylon is mighty? And we're talking about nations that had massive building structures, unbelievably advanced technology, military might that stunned the the ancient Near East. We're, We're talking about cities that if you walked into during Isaiah's day, you would have looked at Nineveh or Babylon and said, wow. We're not talking about some third-rate nations. We're talking about might and power. So Israel has a reason, and Judah has a reason to be afraid. Assyria was a nasty nation. And yet the point of Isaiah is this, that God uses Assyria to do his bidding. He uses Babylon to do his will. He controls the rise and fall of kings and nations And it's a constant invitation for us to ask ourselves, who do we trust? Can I just stop there right now and ask you that question? Friend, how fearful are you right now? Do do you know that people in our world and culture, whether it's in marketing or in business, in relationships, politics, social media, if somebody wants to move you to action, the, the most effective way to do that is to freak you out. There are a few things more motivating to move you from point A to point B than fear. Joy does the same thing. Happiness, the, the invitation to, 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 to be made content or happy, that's a motivator. But faster, more furious, we'll spend money, we'll buy things, we'll do things, we'll say things because of fear faster than any other human emotion. And central to the book of Isaiah is this. What do you fear, why, and how does God factor into that equation? The challenge is that Israel has to decide who they are going to trust in. Take your Bible and go to Isaiah 30. This is a longer passage, but it's worth reading. Isaiah 30, beginning in verse 8. Isaiah 30 in verse 8 through 18 gives us a beautiful snapshot of the message of Isaiah. Here's what God's word says, Isaiah 30, verse 8. And now, go. 
write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to seers, so they're saying to seers, do not see, and to prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So constantly, the people of God are telling people like Isaiah, stop talking. Stop telling us this. Isaiah 30, 12, therefore says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. You see it? But you were unwilling. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Now, for most of us, that's not a thought that you've had. (laughs) No, I'm going to run away on a horse. No, we have other horses. And the key, church, is for you to figure out in 21st century American Christianity, what is our, what is your horse? The text says, in returning and in rest you'll be saved. And Isaiah's people say, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you will flee away. You said, we will ride upon swift steeds. The idea is, we're going to trust in our might. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. Notice, panic is ensued. And at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. In other words, God says, I'm going to make an example out of you. And then look at what he says in verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. This is why Isaiah is so amazing. The bigger and the higher and the more exalted that you understand what God is like, he exalts himself so that he can extend mercy to you. Isaiah is meant to wow you so it can woo you. It's meant to marvel you so it can minister to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are all those who worry. (laughs) Blessed are all those who panic. Blessed are all those who try and figure everything out. Blessed are those who wait for him. One of the reasons that I love the book of Isaiah because whether it's the 8th century or the 6th century or the prophecies about the future, the questions are always the same. Questions in our culture are any different than they were in the 8th century. C.S. Lewis talked about chronological snobbery. 
which is the idea of thinking that you in your generation either know more than the previous ones or you've been so advanced that you could look back at the past and think you're better or think that nobody's ever struggled with what we struggle with. When you read Isaiah, you're gonna laugh. (laughs) There's nothing new. You read Isaiah, you're gonna find yourself going, we're just like that. And that's why the Bible was written. So, these three sections quickly. Chapters one to 39, the word turn. The idea in these chapters is that God's people have strayed from him and there is the offering of deliverance. The idea is that God wants to help his people. He wants them to come out of their rebelliousness and their spiritual apathy and he wants them to be a light for the nations. We read it earlier, but here it is again. Isaiah 1, 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New, new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I'm gonna stop there. What God can't stand is iniquity and the solemn assembly. The idea is people gather and they say, holy, holy, holy. And then they leave and treat people in a way that has nothing to do with their vision of God. God says, I hate that. You hate that. Everybody hates that. But yet we still do it. And the vision of Isaiah is a people who come out of their religious hypocrisy and allow the very heart of God and the vision of God to translate into their daily lives. In chapter six, Isaiah has a vision of the holiness of God. In chapter 11, Ahaz is told, don't fear Assyria. And when he refuses to believe and ask God for a sign, God gives him a sign about a virgin that will conceive. A virgin whose name will mean God is with us, Emmanuel. In chapters 13 to 23, Isaiah turns his attention to the other nations around Israel who need to repent because God's aim is not just to take Israel to task, but to take the whole world to task because it isn't just Israel that's in trouble, the whole world's in trouble. That's why the whole world needs a God who saves. And in chapters 28 to 39, the leaders of Judah are taken task to task for their trust in earthly powers. They rely on Egypt. Assyria threatens Jerusalem. Hezekiah appeals to God. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God rescues him from Assyria, and before he even knows it, he's giving the leaders of Babylon a tour of all of his wealth. And it won't be long until Babylon overruns the city of Jerusalem and the people are taken into captivity. And in this section, the people of God continually struggle with placing their trust in God. They place their trust in everything but God. Chapters 40 to 55, the word believe. In this section, we have one of the most Christocentric series of chapters in all of the Bible. Jerusalem is destroyed. 
Isaiah is speaking to exiles in the Babylonian captivity, and the entire section begins with these hopeful words. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness. This should be familiar. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those words were written to a people who thought God had forgotten about them. Despite all of the promises, all of the difficulties, God keeps communicating his grace to his people, and yet they struggle to believe in him. In this section, Isaiah talks about a servant who's going to come. He's called the the new Israel. He is the one who will be the manifest presence of God's righteousness and holiness, and this will be the way in which God will make his light known to the world and will also redeem his people, but it's coming in a way that doesn't make any sense to them. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. The message of Isaiah, listen, is that God is going to redeem his people, but he's going to do it in a way that just doesn't make any sense. And then finally, chapters 56 to 66, there are promises for the future, a new heaven and a new earth, a time when the new Jerusalem will replace the old and God's glory will come, and it is this proclamation that the servant makes in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Wow. And by the way, in Luke chapter 4, this is the text that Jesus opened up in his hometown in Nazareth, spoke on and said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. So this book is amazing. It elevates the glory of God in order to, to invite us to be humbled. It calls upon us to worship deeply and then to live righteously. It pleads for individual righteousness. Be holy, be godly, and then pleads with us to apply that righteousness in how we collectively live and care for those who are on the margins. Isaiah gives us a big view of God in order to tackle big problems. 
It calls on us to turn from apathy and inconsistency and hard-heartedness and hypocrisy and angry resentment and taking that into worship, acting as if it's all not really there, and then going out and having blatantly inconsistent lives. It calls upon us to believe, to look to the suffering servant, the one who could only make things right, and to see his way of life as the way that we are to live. And this book calls upon us to live for another kingdom to realize that Assyria isn't Israel's biggest problem. Babylon isn't their greatest threat. Their greatest threat is a heart set on the wrong things, and that is the very thing that our God can save us from. So if in your life right now, friend, you feel lost, and you don't know where to go, and you don't even know where you are, can I point you to the landmark book of Isaiah and see the summit off in the horizon? And let me invite you, in the midst of your despair, your discouragement, or your uncertainty, see that mountain? That's the book of Isaiah. Let's go there, and you'll gain perspective. Our God saves. God, we thank you that this message through the book of Isaiah extends to our day and age right now. And God, we need to be reminded that you save. We need to be reminded that you rescue. We need to be reminded that you restore. So come now, please, help us to study and dive deep into this book to receive all of its instructions, to embrace all of its tension, and to see you in light of who you are. Lord, I pray today specifically you'd apply this book to people who feel lost. Lord, would you remind them of the powerful, loving, gracious Savior whose yoke is not heavy, whose burden is light. So we come to him even now. We come to you, Jesus, asking for you to help us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.